the Japanese archipelago, 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders, calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exiled colony. The Isle of Dogs. I don't think I can stomach any more of this garbage. Michael Sue, we are back again for Marquez Played. And this time we're talking about uh, Wes Anderson's latest joint, uh, Isle of Dogs. And Wes Anderson is one of those guys who has the extremely distinct style, right? Yes. I, I, I don't think there's an, another director out there where you, you play about 30 seconds of the movie and you, you know exactly who it is, you know? I mean, even like the classics, Kubrick, uh, uh, Coppola, any of those guys, they come up and I mean, it could be anything, but a Wes Anderson joint is a Wes Anderson joint through and through. So Isle of Dogs, and 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 the topic we're talking about this time is basically the you know directors or filmmakers having a perceived style and sort of the fan reaction when uh, things veer right and left or you know when things kind of go go off the the beaten path. So. Um, I don't, has Wes Anderson ever gone off the beaten path at all? Like, I, I can't, I don't think it's, there's a certain movie, any movie of his that doesn't have his particular style in it. Yeah. I mean, the best case you could make would be something like Fantastic Mr. Fox purely because it's stop motion animation, which we're back to with Isle of Dogs, aren't we? Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I really want to look at, uh, filmmaker appropriation since that's, <laughs> that's been the charge. Uh, thrown uh, out against uh, Isle of Dogs, but in true Marcus played fashion, I have I have no interest in the the sort of uh, racial appropriation or the the politics behind it. Uh, in particular, with the Greta Gerwig character uh, being a white savior, I was far more offended. You want no part of social justice. Just a bit to adhere on Marcus played. You want you're you're tired of these Marcus uh, these social justice warriors. Say it. I mean, probably long tired, uh, since you know, they, they just, they talk too much, basically, is the thing. Like, it's clogging your Twitter feed, <laughs> you know, uh, just never happy. That, that's the thing. Like, it, it's not that there's, um, not a legitimate point, cause, uh, I was fully ready to just dismiss any and all criticisms, uh, as a huge Fantastic Mr. Fox fan. Then I watched this damn movie and, I was like, okay, yeah, there's some problems here. And, and certainly, uh, having the, the, the white, uh, for an exchange student, be the one lecturing all of these, these, these people about their their culture and what's wrong with hold them. On, hold on, I, I in it, in my current situation of being the foreign uh, citizen <laughs> in Germany, I kind of you are I kind of connect with this this person who wants to you know, because in my forty eight hours here in Germany, I've been walking around lecturing all kinds of Germans about. <laughs> well, let me let me warn you, you're, sir. You are no Greta Gerwig. You know she may be able to get away with that, but. Uh, I I will. That's as as far as I'll go with the particular criticism of this film is that yeah I found her character annoying. I didn't find it necessarily offensive, but I understand where they're coming from. But what I was far more, uh, I guess, offended by was to what you just said. It feels like Wes Anderson, even when he's doing a film about a pack of wild dogs who have been exiled from their masters and from their land on this garbage island. 
that it's still so it's so much of what I've seen before from Wes Anderson. And I guess there's a certain charm to that as far as, yes, he applies his sensibilities to uh, what's in essence a kid's film with talking dogs. But for me, I, I feel like the, the gags, the gags are no longer landing. And, and maybe it worked for me the first time he did this with fantastic Mr. Fox, where, you know, I like seeing a um, sort of a scoundrel character like that George Clooney plays their voices, uh, the Fox. Uh, Cause you can usually see him, as like the Gene Hackman patriarch in Royal Tenenbaums, very similar character. Maybe then I found it uh, amusing. I still think Fantastic Fox, Mr. Fox is a better movie, but uh, Isle of Dogs for me uh, had me coming out hoping, desiring that Wes Anderson, like, does he have a fucking mean streets in him or something? I was like, all right, dude, uh, maybe now, maybe now is finally the time for me. And I know there are a lot of people that he's already worn out as welcome, but uh, this might've been the movie for me where I'm drifting into the Wes Anderson hater camp. What about yourself? Is there such a thing? Is there a Wes Anderson hater camp? I think so. Because I, I I haven't found a movie that I hate because of the style or because of his uh, niceness, I guess is what you would call it. I, I haven't found any of that yet. I have enjoyed all the films that I have seen. Um, and I think that they work on various levels and most of them are like the issues I have with them are like they're fucking boring or it's a script issue or whatever it is. But for the most part, like Moonrise Kingdom and that hotel movie and, you know, the stuff that I've seen has been fun. I don't understand where a Wes Anderson hater would come from. I mean, maybe, you know, playing the same. It's like the Mumford and Sons, you know what I mean? Like you play <laughs> songs that are pretty good. But you play. Oh man! See to me that you have just lobbed like the like that is a huge bomb you've just dropped on Wes Anderson. Like that would be the the little Rotten Tomato splat I would want to see. Like more Mumford and Sons songs if you're into that. That <laughs> that, is, that is a deep cut. <laughs> it's like uh, have they, is there a song over yet? Is there is there is there has their one song stopped playing yet? Is what I want to know, and that's how I see. That's how I see um, Wes Anderson. You know, I mean, it's literally the same thing over and over. Yeah, yeah. Now you got a puppet or a dog doing it, or you got a fox doing it, but it's the same crap over and over and over. I mean, you get and, and not only that, you get these recurrent, you get this troop of recurrent actors that come in and out of the, you know, the um, Bill Murray's and the Jason Schwartzmans and those guys. Um, they come in and out, but yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, I still kind of enjoy them. I, I just, whatever, like I can still play Mumford and Sons. It's a good time. Just- All right. I got to catch you off there because <laughs> you know that just for your own sake, for your reputation, I, I can't have you, uh, rocking out to Mumford and Sons. Is Mumford and Sons, well, hold on. I, I'm, I'm getting a little old. So is Mumford and Sons like the new Nickelback or something? What is this? Like, it's not cool to like I think of that, one song? that particular subgenre of, uh, was it? What would you call it? Like folk rock? I, I don't know. Like if you put a banjo in it, you're, you're out. You're you're tapped out. Is that what you're doing? Uh, no, but I, I think that uh, the their their particular like uh, <laughs> hipster appropriation of of that oh, of the ba- the banjo playing <laughs> lifestyle. Uh, yeah, that's that's it's pretty uncool. I don't, I don't know if they're Nickelback levels, but I'm not saying Wes Anderson is either. <clears throat> what? Is, <clears throat> that's a good sub question. Is there a filmmaker? <clears throat> Excuse me. And clear your throat, man. I got mm. drink some water. My God, what's I got, going uh, on over there? Well, I, I don't have the, the stamina to do these back-to-back shows, and we've got we've got a lot to talk about here. But uh, spoiler alert, yeah. Um, spoiler, you know that they're very excited for. I'm sure, knowing that there's more yeah. Marcus played coming. 
Uh, they should be quivering. They should be freaking leaking. Well, they were before you you started talking about how much you adored Mumford and Sons, but, uh, I didn't say adore. (laughs) Settle down. I can play it. What is the, I uh, I established a one to one relationship with Wes Anderson. Okay. Fair enough. What, what is there a one to one relationship between Nickelback and a particular director where it's just like, uh, the Russo brothers, the Russo brothers. Go check out our previous episode on <laughs> Avengers three Infinity thing. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I I would not have gone gone particularly uh, in that direction, but uh, I enjoy the, <laughs> the the attempt at trolling there uh, from people that presumably enjoyed what we said about Avengers Infinity War and now are being slapped and reprimanded for for you know, giving over their heart <laughs> they, to us. They haven't stopped crying from the last viewing, so whatever. They, you know, they probably won't hear my like like deep cut at them, but. Um, to answer your question, is there a Nickelback director? Um, Brett Ratner? Does he still direct or is he just all producing now? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if he's doing that, uh, post Me Too movement. I, I don't know. About, I don't know what Brett Ratner's up to Bay? anymore. Michael Bay, I think, you know, would fall into the Probably. Nickelback category where he's very saccharine. Well, the, and they're both successful. Like they're, they're extremely successful, right? Their names are, uh, you know, instantly trigger hatred, no matter what they're doing. But uh, financially, for a certain sect of people, for a certain sect of right, people, yes, right. it triggers hatred. Um, I, I think probably someone like Wes Anderson that uh, comes out of the gate uh, as like a cool director or uh, garners a lot of critical praise early on. Like for me, Bottle Rocket is still uh, my favorite movie of his uh, because I it's got all the Wes Anderson isms, but I feel like uh, unlike what he continued to do, like he really has an obsession with, uh, like you look at Rushmore, Tenenbaums, which followed it up, uh, or even something like Life Aquatic, uh, Darjeeling Limited. I'm trying to, I'm just keep going. They're all very wealthy characters who have very small problems, usually some sort of hang up, uh, within their family. And, uh, I was, I think Bottle Rocket probably has grown in my estimation because it's actually about, um, like normal people, normal in the sense that they are uh, working shitty jobs. Uh, they have dreams they aspire to that they're failing at and probably have no business even trying to accomplish them. Um, so I, I guess that is when I asked Wes Anderson to do a Mean Streets, um, that was his Mean Streets was Bottle Rocket. So he just fired all his bullets right up front then for you? I think he's probably probably honest Like when he actually started to get some respect and a level of success critically that – uh, obviously, there's a lifestyle change, uh, right? Where uh, he can not only can he paint on a bigger canvas, so he has huge casts and ten bombs with like Angelica Houston, Gene Hackman, Ben Stiller, bigger names. But he probably is looking more inward to his own lifestyle, where you know he's like living in Paris and just <laughs> decorating a room. So he's got like <laughs> now he's talking about first world problems. You know? Yeah, so yeah. This is it. Yeah, I mean at least he's honest. That's a good point. You know you. you he, he moved up, he moved on up in the world to the apartment in the sky and you know he's got bigger fish to fry now so you know he's gonna bombard us bottom feeders that are still down here in the <laughs> in the sewers with his fucking first world problems and expect us to keep paying the bills is that what you're saying uh, I mean I think there's for him there's probably a reason that uh, you know the Greta Gerwig character is so prominent in Isle of Dogs that I think he probably has a harder time navigating the the terrain of uh, regular people uh, even something like Moonrise Kingdom the kids are basically fully formed Wes Anderson characters and how old are they 11 12 uh yeah i mean they're of uh 
They were of sexual thought age, so probably around there. <laughs> As in they're having sexual thoughts, not like I'm having sexual thoughts about them. Let me clarify. If uh, for some reason a nasty th- Hellcat is listening. I think but, uh, I think when we were going over this this morning and we were like, yeah, do you want to edit? You want to edit? Then we were both very sort of agreeable. Uh, as far as like, oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, I have a feeling now, for your sake, you're gonna take dibs on this episode. Got this one. I got this one. <laughs> Whereas I would immediately be bringing out, out the Mumford scissors. And Sons. See, I would take out the scissors uh, and remove that part and kick off the show before the music plays. Just with your thoughts on <laughs> <laughs> these eleven year olds being <laughs> primed and ready. Um, where were we? Where were we? Uh, I think, you know, why don't we steer away from this? And we talk about my podcast here okay. that I brought to the table this week. So yep. I was listening to a podcast called The Mousterpiece. So they, yeah, these two gentlemen, they talk about films that kind of fall into the Disney umbrella, which pretty much means they talk about movies, period, right? Because yeah, everything falls yeah, into the Disney point. umbrella. Yep. And they were talking about um, Martin Scorsese. Oh, look at that. And his perceived style, right? And they, they obviously highlighted on a film called Kundun, which, oh, as you know. God, obviously. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I think very highly of. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but you just probably are sick of me talking about it. Yes. Um, but <laughs> they talk about how the, the various ways that this movie is sort of a, a quote-unquote departure from his style. In terms of where Kundun fits, uh, I mean, it's, it's not like any other Scorsese film that he made. In some ways, it's kind of an anomaly in his career, both in terms of style, but also in terms of some of the people he worked. It's the only movie he did with Roger Deakins. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not the kind of film that people think of when they think of Scorsese. Right. Uh, and, and in some have, ways, I think, but as I say, but, you have said that I, I saw this on Twitter. I was looking up old tweets that this is uh, you. You have argued that this could be his best film since Goodfellas, at least. So. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that. I'm, I'm serious. I'm not sure if that maybe adds to the sense of it feeling potentially out of place in his in what feels like a Scorsese film, quote unquote, feels like one of his films. You know, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. I mean, uh, you know, and, and and I say that uh, I probably said I can't remember when exactly I said that. I can't remember if I said that before I saw Silence or after mm-hmm. I saw Silence. Uh, I, I love I love Kundun. I've probably seen Kundun more times than any other Scorsese film, except maybe Taxi Driver. <laughs> Um, in part because, you know, in my own personal history of cinephilia, Taxi Driver had like a you know, 10, 15 year head start on it. But um, ironically enough, of all those films, I mean, most most Scorsese films that I've seen multiple times, whether it's, you know, Taxi Driver or Last Temptation or Raging Bull or, or Goodfellas, I could probably recite them. I mean, you know, put a couple of drinks in me, give me a, give me some time and I could probably tell you exactly what happens in those movies scene by scene by scene and probably get most of the dialogue right i can't do that with kundun like kundun is like a different movie every single time i see it um in part that's i think maybe because of the style it's not linear in the traditional ways and it's almost like counter it's it's like counterintuitive narrative in some ways i mean you'll have random dream visions in the middle of scenes where they don't quite make sense so it's 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 captures my attention when i'm watching it in a way that none of the other films do at this point i mean taxi driver i I will gladly watch taxi driver any given moment of any given day but you know at this point taxi driver is taxi driver i mean i know exactly what i'm in for kundun every time i watch it i'm like wow i did all sorts of things i didn't notice before you know so um so it stands out in that way too but at the same time i think that um not to 
slander of this podcast that we're featuring here, but I think that if you take a look at his entire library, uh, his filmography or whatever it is, it, you know, there is a very eclectic sort of style there. I mean, it, it, you know, you've got like Last Temptation of Christ and, you know, Age of Innocence and Boxcar Birth and all these crazy films in there. But I think that what he's well known, most known for is sort of the grindy underbelly of whether it be The Mob or, or New York City. And I think that Kundun coming right after Casino, where it has that same sort of flavor of um, of Goodfellas, it's kind of, you know, the, the general audience hooks onto the fact that Scorsese has this style. But in reality, I don't know if he does have a quote unquote style. I mean, he has certain tools that he wields often. You know, he's got the voiceover, the editing style, the music is obviously a, always a big thing with Scorsese. But, um, Kundun is one of those movies that, uh, one, not a lot of people saw, not a lot of people give it its due respect. I'm looking at you, Mr. Dennison. <laughs> well, you're not and, because you don't have an operating webcam. We've established <laughs> the Shane Connor shit that I'm running over here. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag War Machine versus War There we go. There's a little promotion there. Uh, but um, yeah, no, they bring up a good point that this movie is sort of a, a, a good example of Scorsese um, trying new things and then trying to you know grow as a filmmaker. And I, I appreciate that. I think that that's what makes him one of the greats or if not the great uh, American filmmaker is that he's, he's will, he has a – a a sort of um he does have a style but not really you know i guess is is the best way to kind of wrap that up so and a uh, long story short you should check out kundun and the masterpiece podcast <laughs> okay so and since i've not seen kundun uh and that you know that one's probably still uh, way down on the queue hiro <laughs> like you know i've got to i don't know got to watch uh the Darjeeling Limited again, maybe something like that. <laughs> something. I've never seen that. <laughs> well, it is it is uh, the Mumford and Sons of the Wes Anderson filmography for sure. Um, <laughs> Wait, hold up, is it Wes Anderson, <laughs> the Mumford and Sons of Wes Anderson? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so maybe you'd be all over it. Um, <laughs> oh no! See, look at that. Is that necessary? <laughs> You're painting this picture of me being like this Uber fan, like I'm wearing a Mumford and Sons shirt right now. <laughs> But <laughs> well, that's uh, yeah, I do believe that because you know you refuse to turn on the webcam, so I can only assume you're you, you've got your weekend. I'm out here fighting wars, Michael, and I'm podcasting. Like I'm, <laughs> you know, it's not like I just ignore your text and didn't show up for podcasting. Mm-hmm. I, I'm doing my best over here. I'll get a podcast camera soon. Yeah, you, uh, yeah, you, de- you, you definitely you showed up to uh, to uh, rant about Kundun again, the greatness of Kundun, and uh, uh, I'll say this as an outsider. Like so, in your podcast, I I have that perspective. I have it like sight unseen, thinking like, oh, that's a Scorsese movie, but not really. Like, you know, I, I want to watch Goodfellas again. Right? Even something like Casino that you mentioned. Like, I, I remember being one of the chief criticisms of Casino is that it's uh, you know, it's 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 Goodfellas, you know, one point five or something. Right. Like, um, mm-hmm. So, are you saying that his his style? he purposely tones down his, his style or the stuff that he applies to like his like more popular gangster moves for Kundun or uh, are you saying that people just think of hyper violence in that gangster setting as Scorsese style when really his filmography is far more vast and they're, they're ignoring what his sort of true style is. I think it's more the latter, but I think that the, the former is also true. I think that he does apply some of those tools that he uses. You know, for instance, the music is a big deal in Kundun. And while it isn't like the Rolling Stones playing over things or, or sort of the stuff that from the sixties and the early seventies that we're used to with Scorsese, 
I think that he employs music in a in an awesome way in Kundun. So the music does play this like massive role, voiceover and those sort of things, and and his visual style is there, but it's just it's twisted in a different way. But at the same time, I think that the the latter is also true, where people just don't really associate with these other films of his. They 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 know he came out with Hugo, but nobody's calling it a a Scorsese joint. Like nobody's saying, "Oh, look at that the style of Scorsese." And they're looking at Hugo or whatever it is, or or you know, Last Temptation of Christ or something like that. Um, I think that or, or Silence for that matter, a film that you and I both really mm-hmm. really enjoyed um, a couple of years ago. The Great Silence, great. The Great Silence. Have you watched it again? I, I did. I, I wanted to. I'm trying to think. Did it? Uh, how long ago it came to? Uh, was it Amazon Prime? When it, whenever yeah, something like that, yeah. Whenever it first got, joined there, so it's like a, I don't know if that's uh, being being a poser saying I didn't like you know buy it immediately or pay for it, but uh, it was on the front page of Prime, and I'm like, hey, you got to, I've got I've got to experience this again. So I mean, hell, it only played in my theater for two days before they yeah, <laughs> before they pulled right. it, so uh, I didn't even yeah. have the opportunity to go see it again on the big screen. So yeah, it, it still holds up. Even on the small screen. Yeah, no. yeah it's a big and, experience. And do you feel that that film fits? How does that fit into Scorsese's library from what you have seen? I don't know how much of his stuff you've seen, but like I, it does. It feels completely – like if you didn't know it was Scorsese, would you have known he did it? Um, I would say probably he's, – he's going back to similar themes, right? Um, the, Theme-wise, yes. Yeah. Right? The, the, um, the, the, the religious stuff and – because for uh, War Machine versus War Horse, it was an episode I, I really enjoyed having the, the conversation. Um, I, I did it with Ben Zook, who I uh, do 99 from 99 with now. And um, Man, how many of your podcasts are being advertised on this episode here? Well, I'll, I'll get to the Grand Gesture later and uh, uh, what else do Sober I got? Sober Cinema. Yeah, Sober Cinema. That's that's one that some people like. Mumford & Sons fans really really dig Sober Cinema. So they I'll, do, man. They're <laughs> just huge fans. They play episodes of, of uh, Sober Cinema <laughs> before – before every concert, I uh, I will have to uh, relay that to my co-host, the Nasty Hellcat, and he would have an aneurysm if he if he knew he was associated in any way with Mumford and Sons. But um, on on that particular episode for Silence, we talked about the Mean Streets and uh, bringing out the dead, and I think all three of those films are vastly different from right. a style point of view. But uh, hold on, I'm, I'm my phone's blowing up with fandom for uh, sober cinema here. Um, you got to fight them off, man. I mean, right. it's tough being the, the nickelback of podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like they <laughs> – really, they are doing the Lord's work there, like like the characters in silence. Um, but I feel like, you know, what he, he comes back to, it, it would be it would be very silly for him to try to apply the uh, sort of, like, drug-fueled, like, nightmare hellscape of bringing out the dead <laughs> to the characters of silence. But w- what they're battling and what they're – the, the characters are really thinking about, of course, is their their place in the world, sort of spiritually, or I guess what their responsibilities are. Um, right. And so, yeah, I, I actually think it's really fun to like look at films more that way than something like Wes Anderson, where you know the 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 sort of spatial relationship between the characters, as far as how they awkwardly stand and everything, is like perfectly centered in frame. Maybe that would be interesting if I felt like what his themes were, what he was going back to repeatedly had any sort of merit but i <laughs> i don't know what uh, the particular substance is in a wes anderson film moonrise kingdom i, I think maybe because obviously you're dealing with a, a child who <laughs> feels a sense of abandonment and there's uh there's a group of adults who a community that come together to to sort of like adopt this like 
you know, this little delinquent, but sexual (laughs) well well, (laughs) yeah i I was very careful with my words unlike you (laughs) talking about this child but uh that's the thing is like you know what it's not just how a filmmaker like presents the material it's also like what's on his mind when it's presenting it that i think is probably far more uh important you know it's it's the 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 sexiness and the slickness of like goodfellas as far as like that world he's presenting but the way he's approaching it is far different than you know the nickelback of director say michael bay i love pain and gain but it's a far different like clearly the filmmakers look at their characters very differently even if they're in like similar worlds and like probably are ethically similar as far as their actions uh there's a certain celebration of stupidity in pain and gain that i don't think scorsese shares is it a celebration though honestly i mean is is he celebrating their stupidity or is he pointing at them and laughing at them I think it's both. I mean, I think I think there's a bit of cynicism, which I do like in Pain and Gain, that Bay is saying that the only thing valuable about these guys is that they're too stupid to know that they really have no value or weight. Like that, right. he's 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 reveling in their their excess while also uh, saying these guys, you know, they don't deserve any of it. Um, I wouldn't make that same accusation to something like Goodfellas. Like, obviously, there's you know, mistakes are made, right? In Goodfellas, uh, drugs come into play, and uh, yes. there's betrayal and all that. But uh, I, I would, I think it's probably not a stretch to say that the characters are far more respectable and have a certain or a certain image of honor uh, in their world that is not shared in Pain and Gain. No, they're not morons. I think I mean, there are <laughs> morons in the film, right? But they're not the leads, right? The leads are – their flaws are not stupidity, whereas the, the flaws in Pain and Gain are sincere idiocy. Um, <laughs> Which I you love. Know, you were talking about <laughs> – yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, you were talking about Wes Anderson and you, you kind of like uh, – it, it, it almost felt like – and this is kind of what I got out of your thing was that you almost – and correct me if I'm wrong here – is that – his style overwhelms looking at the themes. When we were talking about, you know, Scorsese and his films, there's that underlying theme which other kind of work out to dig out a little bit, um, even, even in these vastly different films. But in Wes Anderson, I feel like his style sort of overwhelms that. Like, it's just such a barrage and so quirky and so, you know, goofy that it's hard, it's harder to kind of pinpoint or at least to focus on, you know, what he's trying to say with these films. Yeah, I mean the characters feel more like a kid playing with his action figures or something. Like yes. it's like they're all you know it's it's very particular, uh, and there's definitely something. There's a look to it and a way that he he plays you know his his version of gags. That and a lot of it is the the visual language of the film is the gag, not so much what's being said. But because of that, because it every character uh, feels like it's from one voice. I think that's that's a distinction from like something like Scorsese, where you can say the the total work, the film itself, feels like it comes from the voice of one filmmaker, whether it be Silence or Mean Streets, what have you. My my issue with Wes Anderson, I guess that I don't know, you know, if I'd ever be in the mood to do a Wes Anderson triple feature because I think if I got to the end of it, I'd feel like I saw seventy two characters that were all the same exact person talking to themselves, talking to each other. Like it's. Have you ever listened to a Mumford and Sons album all the way through? <laughs> Or back to back? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I've not experienced that particular circle of hell. But <laughs> exactly, exactly the same thing. Then 
you're working really hard to uh to to attach Mumford and Sons to uh to the Wes Anderson name and uh I I won't disagree uh necessarily. So I just can't think of another another musician that would be you know who I would think? Metallica. Same thing. Okay. Yeah. Um one song just for a long time. <laughs> really really long time. There was a um uh, I think Bill Burr had a bit, I can't remember. I don't remember the context of the conversation or why he went to it, but he was, his argument was that it's maybe unfair to ask uh, an artist that don't, they don't have the particular tools to grow or to do something different, but they're good at that one thing. Uh, his example was ACDC. Um, always like every song was about basically their testicles, about their balls. And that's, that's all they're interested in is, uh, is that one particular thing they have their, their genitals and, uh, they get out there and they scream about it and, uh, they, they, they present their particular brand of machismo and, uh, to expect anything more would be stupid. So my podcast that I have here, um, is from, I like how you intro this podcast with dudes talking about their balls proceeds. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, it was interesting though, because, um, this podcast and they probably, if they listen to this, probably won't appreciate that. You know, if, if you have the two clips back to back, Bill Burr talking about ACDC's balls and then, uh, the cinema holics talking about Phantom Thread. And he's kind of content with his life, but one day a young woman, a strong willed defiant woman comes into his life and starts to change his perspective on relationships and his work and more. Um, with that said, Kimber Myers, what did you think of Phantom Thread? Like going into the movie, I mean, was there anything about like P.T. Anderson? Do you have any baggage with that director or otherwise? And uh, what, what did you think of Phantom Thread walking out? So I'm a big Paul Thomas Anderson fan. Uh, so big, in fact, and this, this dates me in several ways. But my AIM, rest in peace, uh, screen name for a while was, I guess, for, I guess until it died uh, was Magnolia eighty two twenty eight, and <laughs> so you're a, you're a fan of Magnolia, maybe. Yeah, um, I haven't been as big of a fan of the last few films as I was of him earlier in his career, um, and I hate to say this, but was not incredibly excited by the trailer for. Phantom Thread uh, was just kind of like, I will, I will see that because of my devotion to this director. And I, I saw it early. Um, I was in the front row at a screening and was incredibly uncomfortable and maybe didn't have the best, uh, best angle to see this really beautifully shot film and thought it was pretty great, but then saw it a second time and it became my number one movie of last year. I just, uh, I loved the texture of it, both the the physical texture of all of the different fabrics, as well as all the different layers of the film, and was really surprised by it. Yeah, uh, I, I had the pleasure of seeing this in in seventy millimeter at the Alamo, and it was like if if any of you listening, uh, I think it's going to be pretty obvious that a lot of us really like this movie. If you have a chance to go see Phantom Thread in seventy millimeter, because it was shot on film, uh, please do. It is well worth uh, seeking out. But, uh, okay, Will Ashton, uh, what did you think of Phantom Thread? And yes, P.T. Anderson, uh, of course. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, it's uh, no secret that Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite filmmaker. Uh, I love all of his films, if not to the same degree, but really, I mean, like even the ones that some people have uh, 
Discernments with like Inherent Vice and um, Punch Drunk Love. I could, I really enjoy those movies a lot. But kind of similar to Kimber, I wasn't really sure what to make of Phantom Thread before it came out, just because it really didn't look like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Not necessarily in a bad way, it just didn't really have the same kind of flourishes and different things that are usually accompanied by his other films. Yeah, like it and doesn't so, take place in California, right? Yeah, or the United <laughs> States. It was interesting to hear the the different hosts their approach their entry point to phantom thread and their enthusiasm or lack of enthusiasm for this film before it released like some people on the show were were saying that it didn't necessarily look like or they didn't understand uh why paul thomas anderson uh this this story was like next up uh in his queue to tell and uh i thought that was interesting because i i feel like you probably won't ever throw that accusation the way of Wes Anderson. Like everything, even if it's a dog talking dog movie, uh, it is still so Wes Anderson like that you just immediately accept it. Um, and and they they sort of debated like um, the idea of like a filmmaker uh, maybe go sewing, going so far afield from certainly something like Boogie Nights or uh, There Will Be Blood, like deciding to make a film about a dressmaker. Uh, that challenge, how how it's important for an, a director to sort of challenge their their own fan base, uh, because like you and I guess Kundun, uh, they had no interest necessarily in the subject matter, but because it was Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, they gave it a chance and they they really they really dug the movie. So, right. um, but I think that that kind of ignores you know some of his other stuff, right? I mean, because you've got the the. What's the 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 Adam Sandler joint that he did? The Punch Drunk Love, yeah. Punch Drunk Love. I mean, that's a departure. I mean, that's something completely different than than Boogie Nights and, and There Will Be Blood. And then you've got uh, the one with Walking Phoenix that was kind of brutal. Um, gosh, I, I'm forgetting all these titles, man. The Master. Um, no, 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 Inherent no, Vice. The next one, Inherent Vice. Yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, you put play those back to back, and there's not really a through line there. Um, I guess aesthetically speaking, and also sort of. You know, filmmaking speaking in the in the way it's presented or whatever like that. I I, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson is one of those guys that, to me, he I mean, it, it, it's a little early to to you know compare him to Scorsese, I think, but he has some sort of that feel where he's just kind of doing his own thing, and he I feel like I'm waiting for like the real comedic, uh, you know, West uh, Paul Thomas Anderson joint, you know, like a. Or something just way out of See, the most like people say inherent bias, but that don't that would not work for you, right? I, I, okay, like the actually funny comedic <laughs> uh, monster movie from him. God damn, that movie was bad. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> no one's accusing it of being the Mumford and Sons for sure. So that's that's the line I'm saying. <laughs> Absolutely not. Mumford and Sons more, uh, fans, uh, this is not for you. Inherent bias. No, uh, but no, I, I think definitely more. You know, CNC Music Factory. <laughs> You know what? Uh, you kind of put me into a corner there because my hatred of Mumford and Sons is, is so that I'm like, I'll accept it. I will take that that label for, for Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> so it's more fun. Oh, um, I, I think that's that's something that I I wonder how you approach. Like when you become a fan of a particular filmmaker, is there a certain point where you want them 
to stretch because you're i'm assuming you're a fan of of pta you you love his stuff absolutely so you i I watch movies just because his name is on the on the uh, marquee so like inherent vice has not turned you off from his work even though you really dislike that film do you do you like those sort of wild swings or deviations in the filmography okay cool i think i talked about this a little bit on true romance uh the true romance film podcast uh about a month or so ago Talking about directors or filmmakers building up a cachet or building up credit, you know, I, I do it like that. You know, where let's say Taylor Sheridan, from a writing standpoint, he's got this credit with me right now that I'll watch anything he puts out. I'll even go out and see Sicario too, which I'm not really, you know, keen on. I didn't think it's a film weird really sequel. A sequel. It's, it's, it is a weird sequel. Yeah. It, but there's another trailer that came on. It looks like a complete silly action film. Mm-hmm. We'll see what it is, but. Taylor Sheridan has this cachet with uh, Hella High Water, Sicario, and River that I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think that it's kind of like baseball or, or any th- sort of sport or whatever. You've got to put together a series of stinkers. You know, you got to get under that Mendoza line for for a good <laughs> bit of time before I just completely give up on you. You know, if you turn into Dan Ugla overnight, that's one thing. But I mean, you know, Giancarlo Stanton swinging and missing horribly. You know, you're not going to walk away from that guy because you know what he's capable of. So, well, it's, it's think, still fun to watch him just take that swing because there's oh, there's yeah. a chance for greatness every time. Absolutely, and that's exactly what PTA is. You know, he can he can blast that thing out of the park like nobody's business, and and he still has that uh, credit with me because um, I, I I really enjoyed his films uh, a huge chunk of them, and he just keeps he he keeps you know, filling up that thing. Phantom Thread just put him right back up top for me. What about Wes Anderson? Like, I don't want to continue the uh, the baseball analogy because I I don't know how <laughs> how much our our probably our demo of movie podcast consumers can can take it. But do you do you make the accusation? I guess like I have that he's he's not going up to uh, to bat here. Uh, you know, I I don't think there's a possibility of him like hitting a home run. I think like a solid double is what I can expect at best from from Anderson at this point. That guy's like a magical artist at bunting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like bunting is a really is a really key part of the game, and it's it takes a an incredible level of skill to do it properly and over and over again. I think he's just a great bunter. Like he just he does it with with great finesse and great style, but it's still just a bunt. <laughs> you know, it's just it's constantly a bunt, and he's got some good legs and he runs it out. That's uh, Wes Anderson right there. Bunting is Mumford and Sons song. <laughs> I don't think we can get uh, more insulting, so I, I hope the people that uh, I guess I, I sort of took a swipe at uh, the social justice warriors for having issue with the uh, appropriation they accused uh, Anderson of with his new film stuck with us to hear your ultimate insult of Wes Anderson is the guy whose walk-up music is Mumford and & Sons, and every time he gets up to the plate, he attempts to bunt. That's him. I mean, he, he doesn't have another swing in his arsenal. And that's the problem. Is like he just knows one swing. You know, that's it. He's like Ichiro with that slap. That hey, slap. Hey, hey. You know. Look, I was trying to steer us away from the, <laughs> the people accusing this man of, of stealing from uh, Japanese culture. And <laughs> yeah, there he is. He stole Ichiro's swing. <laughs> slap run. Slap run. That's it. I think but, that's you know, uh, it. Works. That, that's He's gonna go to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> well, we'll see if that's the case for Anderson. But well, I was talking about Ichiro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, he's far more deserving. Uh, I think that's probably it. There it is. Yeah, for uh, for Marcus played uh, 
on this this particular episode. So if you uh, like or disliked, I guess the the uh, the comparisons to Mumford and Sons, if you uh, really have them on your playlist alongside Marcus Played, uh, we apologize. And uh, you can hate tweet us at Marcus Played Pod. We're also on Instagram, Facebook at Marcus Played, and uh, hopefully you uh, subscribe if you haven't already done so on the Apple Podcast or your pod player of choice. And we will not be playing uh, Hyrule. I'm just giving you this heads up. If you're editing this episode, please do not play a Mumford & Sons song here. It's happening. Okay. You know what's happening. It's happening right now, and, and everyone hates it. <laughs>